You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a very special individual who holds one of the most important positions in all of Veterans Affairs as it pertains to uh, the post-9-11 War on Terror, and she is just one of the most prominent voices in this space. Very excited for you to hear her story. We'll get to her in just a moment. First, please continue to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast, as well subscribe to the YouTube channel, give a thumbs up and a like to all the content there. You guys are doing amazing at our Amazon promotion, so please go to our website, HazardGround.com. You click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage, it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whatever you want to buy, whatever you need. And uh, we will get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations that have been featured here on the show. Uh, it's very simple, very user-friendly. Also, from your smartphone, if you go to hazardground.com, it'll redirect you to the app. So if you save all your credit card information, it's user-friendly there as well. But it's the easiest way you can help donate to veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping. But you have to go to hazardground.com first. Certainly appreciate it as well as the Apple reviews and all the five-star reviews and all the places that you get this podcast. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is, please continue to leave us reviews. Tell us why you love this show. Uh, we'll try to post them on social media as well. And we certainly appreciate you guys helping grow this Hazard Ground community. We're getting bigger and bigger every day, every week, and we, we know you guys are a big part of it. So we thank you for all your efforts in helping us do so. All right, this week's guest is a former Army captain. Uh, she spent just a little over four years in the U.S. Army, two deployments to Iraq, including one during the surge. But it's her post-military career that has gained her the notoriety and fame that we have her on this show here for today. She was a political and communication strategist for several members of Congress. She was also a White House communications aide. She is the former executive director of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. That's IAVA. Uh, and she led the campaign, She Who Born the Battle, uh, which targeted the Department of Veterans Affairs' gender-exclusive motto and is helping bridge the civil-military divide, uh, not only overall, but certainly with the, the female space and bringing them to the forefront. She's testified before Congress. She's been on the Today Show, CNN, Anderson Cooper, Rachel Maddow, CBS Evening News, and she's now currently just accepted a position as the new CEO of IAVI, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans Association, uh, Veterans of America, rather. She is Allison Jaslow joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Allison, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, it is great to talk to you. Now, uh, Paul Rykoff, the founder of IAVA, was one of our earlier guests. Uh, he's a New Yorker like me, so uh, while we've argued much about football and, and politics and everything else, uh, he, he certainly has paved the way with IAVA for a lot of us uh, and provided a platform for a lot of us, and you're now carrying that torch forward. So congratulations on the position. Um, it's, it's an incredible organization uh, from top to bottom, uh, and one of the biggest players in the veteran space is IAVA. So uh, I, I, I am excited to see where you're going to take this thing, you know, and, and again, your campaign in general, and I'm probably doing too much talking here cause I'd rather you tell this story, but the, she who born the battle thing that came around several years ago, you know, it, it caught my eye and it was one of those things where it's like, okay, what's all this about? Where are we going with all this? And then you start to realize that there is, you know, um, and as I've done this podcast and we were talking before we started recording, you know, the, the, the female contingent, the female population within the military as a whole, 
Um, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to say they're underrepresented. I just don't know if we are putting them all in the right light, right? Because again, it's a small number. It's only about 13% of the military is females. So it's hard to find them. But every chance we get, we should be highlighting stories. We should be telling the good things. We should be promoting them. We, we should, we, we, we've had to fight way too long for very simple things, going to ranger school, getting in combat arms, all these other things that seem fairly easy to do. And so much like a little slogan from he who born the battle to she who born the battle um, is something that still hasn't been fixed yet. And it's still part of, you know, uh, this whole sort of uphill battle that you've been fighting. So I say all that to say thank you. I've talked too much, but I do want to welcome you. <laughs> and I'm excited to have you here to share all this stuff with me. Well, I appreciate your gratitude. And, you know, women in the military and women veterans are definitely um, smaller in numbers and will probably continue to be, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get an equal amount of recognition. So that's what the campaign is all about, you know. Um, it's, it's getting greater visibility around women who serve uh, and have served. And so, you know, I think it takes time. But as of today, still, I think if, if the average American closed their eyes and thought about a veteran, like, you know, in their mind, they think of somebody who looks closer to Paul Rykoff or Mark <laughs> than they would Allison Jaslow, you know. Um, but that's what the work is about, is about to change, you know, the way that America sees its veterans. And so you can equally envision somebody like myself as somebody who served not just in uniform, but in combat as much as somebody like yourself, Mark. Um, and, you know, I will tell you, you've, you've been in the military for some time too. Like there are some badass women who I know who could run circles around some of the dudes I served next to too, you know? <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm glad that if if they are capable, that women are allowed to serve in combat roles now, um, because I've met my fair share of, um, you know, people who were passing the PT test who also were branched infantry. So um, I think that this is a great era, not only for women veterans, but for our, our military going forward, because as long as we're going to continue to have this all volunteer force, like anybody who's willing and capable to step up to the plate um, and can do it, we should want them to be welcome with the military with open arms. It's funny you say that about running circles around guys. Um, you know, the, the, the ruck march now, like the, the six mile ruck march is now a, a standard part of our, it's an annual requirement for us. I hadn't done a ruck march in years, right? It's like, why? Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not the guy who's like wants to inflict pain on myself. Uh, <laughs> and so when it was a couple of years ago, when we first had to go do one, I'll never forget it. Uh, Chief Amanda Button, um, and she was like talking, hey, so let's just get this over. Let's just go. Uh, I'm like, how fast are you going to go? She's like, I- I'm, I'm going to go pretty fast. I'm like, okay, thinking in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, she'll be able to keep up with me. Gone. Gone. Didn't see her. Took off. Gone. Saw her for about the first mile. Never saw her again until the finish line. I mean, she just smoked everybody. Same age as me. <laughs> Right. It's just, you know, it's all I never would have seen it coming. But to your point, that's there are plenty of them out there. Um, and it's interesting because uh, side note, anecdotally, I do want to get to you. But, you know, it's something that I, I've done since I've been a battalion commander. Um, I have I have purposely sought out um, females for certain roles. And I know that there's a double edged sword there. Right. It's like, oh, well, you're cutting off the possibility of getting some. Know what I'm looking for and what I told my staff when I had an open command position. I said, bring them to me to interview. 
If they're good enough, they'll show it. Just bring them to me to interview. I want you to get X number of females to the interview because I want them to have an opportunity otherwise. And even if they don't get it, at least having the interview might be a skill that they can use for the next one that they get. But I believe it's concerted efforts like that that need to be taken across the board. Um, You know, we do this thing that so often in the military, it's like, well, we'll just let the cream rise to the top and we just assume that the good people are going to be there. They're going to stand out to us. Well, you know, mm-hmm. as it turns out, one of the finest and best officers I've ever worked with in the Guard. Um, I did not choose her for an open position that I had in my battalion. I didn't even know she existed. I had no idea who she was. And when they handed me to her, my initial reaction was, why'd you ask me for my opinion if you were just going to give me somebody? I always get mad when military folks do that. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then they do the exact opposite. Well, don't ask me for what I think then. Just give me an order and I'll follow it. But I say all that to say, she came in, and when I tell you, a complete rock star, and uh, she's probably in the top three or four officers I've ever served with, period. I mean, she's just amazing in every single way. Uh, and and it's it's what was shocking to me is that I had never heard of her. You know, I'd been around the Guard, particularly in Georgia here for almost a decade. I had no idea who she was. And that was telling to me that I said, and that's why I said next time I had openings, I'm like, I need to go look and try to find, go find females and bring them to the forefront so at least they have an opportunity. Well, that's a huge credit to you, Mark. Um, you know, I would say not just women, but the best people oftentimes are self-promoters, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least the people I like to hang out with. Um, but I think it's very much, um, I think there's a disproportionate amount of women who lack the ability to advocate for themselves and yes. definitely need a yes. sponsor. Um, so, you know, good for you for using your position to kind of at least, you know, get more in the mix. Um, you know, I also think that like, from my military career, one of the biggest disappointments for me was that um, I wanted to believe that the military was more of a meritocracy than it is. <laughs> but it's, you know, maybe not at the level that I was at when I was in, you know, I was, I got out as a captain. Um, so it's a little more when you're a lieutenant and the captain of a meritocracy, but definitely when you, once you get to the level you're at, Mark, um, or the general officer level, it is not. The, yeah, it is no, the, the, the pyramid gets very tight yeah. and, uh, I've said yeah. this. I've said this so repeatedly. Naive, you know, naive is to think that like there are other factors at play here. So, um, yeah, credit to you for sort of you know doing your best to to make it a level playing field for sure. The only people who let you behind the velvet ropes are the people behind the velvet ropes. So uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's not uh, you can't slip a twenty or you know I, I'm, I'm friends with the DJ it doesn't really work. Uh, in that in that scenario there, um, before I do have one I more. I like how you're comparing yourself to a bouncer, Mark. I'm, I'm still a meathead at, 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 my, at my at my core. I'm still a meathead. Um, so uh, let me just ask you this question before we get into the how you got in the military. You know, sure. you hold this position now. Did did Second Lieutenant Allison Jaslow, did Captain Allison Jaslow ever think that she would be heading an organization like this? Like, was, I mean, look, everybody's got goals and aspirations, you know, and you wanted to do big things, obviously, you're a go-getter. But, you know, uh, when you think back to, you know, Second Lieutenant Allison Jaslow, was she capable of all this or did this kind of morph along the way? Uh, it definitely morphed along the way, but I also, you know, when I – I went to college on an ROTC scholarship because uh, the army was a dream, you know, Um, it was supposed to be what I was going to do for my entire career. At the time we didn't have um, a woman four-star general. So, you know, aim high, as they say, and that was the dream too, is 
if somebody else didn't beat me to it, I was going to be the army's first four-star woman general. Um, so, you know, second Lieutenant Allison Jaslow, before I even went to Iraq, thought that I would still be wearing the uniform today. Um, you know, that said, if I was aiming towards being a four-star general, I certainly wanted to make a big impact out there in the world. Um, so, you know, life had other plans. Um, you know, I still, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if I wasn't a servant leader at heart. Um, and so it's just about, you know, at a point in my career, re-envisioning, actually at different points in my career, re-envisioning how I'm going to be a servant leader and make an impact on the greater good around me, on my country, and for my fellow countrymen. That, that, that's so ironic because Second Lieutenant Mark Zinn, I wanted no part of her career in the Army, and 24 years later, I'm still here. So, uh, you know, strangest, uh, best laid plans, right? Uh, anyway, yep. yeah, I mean, I, I, I as Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah, yeah. Well, 9 11 was the punch in the face, obviously, because I, I never planned on staying, and then it happened, and it kind of just changed the course of everything. But, you know, um, you signed up, you went through ROTC, you said it was a dream. Where, where did the dream start? Where did it come from? I consider myself the only success story of career day that I know. Um, <laughs> in eighth grade, I don't know how they did it where you're from, Mark, but in eighth grade, uh, we transitioned from like having people come into our classroom and talk to us about their careers to getting to like a field trip day where you go and experience a career. Um, as a 13 year old would do, I selected all the places where you could get some free stuff or some food or that other um you know, people who were the year ahead of me had told me was like fun trips to go on, mm-hmm. caring not anything about what my career was going to be. Well, I got voluntold to go to Fort Myer, which is the military base connected to Arlington Na- National Cemetery. It was not my choice. Um, but if you've ever been to Fort Myer, it's a pretty incredible place yeah. um, because of the ceremonial, um, you know, nature of the units that are based there. All of the top brass at the Pentagon lives there. Um, and I, in a sort of very hokey way, got swept off my feet. Um, I think, you know, it's it's where I first really got in touch with the fact that I care so much about our country. Um, and then, you know, when you connect in that way, sort of with an experience like that, of course, like, I'm going to serve my country in uniform. Um, there was probably a, a very smart recruiter who was behind that trip too. <laughs> um, but ever since eighth grade, uh, the army was my dream. You know, I originally thought I'd go to West Point. Um, you know, I dealt with a, I had a, a little bit of a challenging childhood. Um, so that sort of, I don't know, caused me at times to, to lose my way or to, to let West Point slip out of my reach. But did end up going to school on an ROTC scholarship. And I, you know, I graduated in 2000. So I was already uh, on the path to be in the military before 9-11 happened. Yeah, I mean, um, which is I, which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, I, you know, when you talk about the love for your country, I, and, you know, I just, listen, I was always American. I was always proud to be American, you know. Um, but strangely enough, as a kid growing, I identified more as an Italian American than anything else. Like, it was just, I grew up in a very old school Italian family. We were always Italian, right? We just, it's just yeah. the way it was. Um, and, and, you know, that, that fire for me obviously didn't get ignited until 9-11 as a, as a native New Yorker, you know, that's, that's my city. That's my town. You know, my, yeah. I, I, my brother was in Manhattan that day. I had friends who work in those buildings. I had, I had lost friends who worked in those buildings. It, you know, it's just, uh, it's different. I think it's, it's so unique that you were able to, to find that level of patriotism and passion 
in a pre-9-11 world because, like I've told the story several times, I mean, ROTC was a way, means to an end for me. It was just it was a stepping stone over to pay for college. I never, ever thought that I would last a quarter of a century in the military, period. Like, it just wasn't in the – it's not what I was thinking. You know, I had yeah. all these other things that I wanted to do, but, you know, there was a school I wanted to go to at, at Loyola in, in Baltimore, and, and uh, I, I fell in love with the school, and the only way to pay for that private Catholic school was to – was to do ROTC, and so uh, you know it was. It, it's just funny how divergent roads end up sort of in the same spot, you know, uh, one way or another. Especially when it comes to the military. Totally, and I think there there are a lot of stories like yours. Um, you know, for me, it, it's just weird that I. Uh, you know, I remember. I don't know how old you are, Mark. Um, I remember uh, feeling some patriotism around Desert Storm. You know, it was very short lived. Um, yeah. But it still wasn't like, you know, drunk on America yet. Um, it happened later, as I mentioned, um, around the time I did that career day field trip. But I was so dead set on it. Um, not just dead set on it, but like so in the mode of like, this is me and who I am. As I would, I don't know if you've seen the movie Renaissance Man, but I watched that yep. movie so many times. Yep. I could uh, recite it in my sleep. Um, Underrated Danny DeVito movie. movie. Yep. <laughs> have you seen Renaissance Man? Not many people have seen it. It was Marky Mark's first film, I think. But like, I, I love that movie. I it's also like, still know that, um, it's like a cavalcade of stars that you didn't know were stars back then. Yeah, exactly. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, what well, Lilla Broncado ended up getting, you know, from Bronxdale ended up getting thrown in prison. But Kadeem Harrison is in it. Stacey Dash is in it. Uh, yes. Um, who's the, the the famous black actor? Um, he went in all the uh, all the big. I can't remember his name. I know his face. I can see it. The one who played the athlete. Um, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I, I have to go look it up. Yeah, I'm flaking on it too. But yeah, Danny DeVito, like yep. I, I mean, I love that movie so much. I mean, and I also like cared enough about the army that I almost enlisted. Like if I wasn't going to find the right ROTC deal, I was just going to go in the army and, you know, figure it out from there. Because at the time they had the army scholarship fund, you know, this right. is pre like post 11 GI bill, et cetera. Um, I love that you know Renaissance Man. Well, I mean, look, I would tell everybody. My favorite movie growing up, and most most people I talk to have never heard of if it. You awesome. If you haven't seen it, you've ever been in the military, just go watch Danny DeVito go down the rappel tower, and you will die laughing. <laughs> because if you've ever if you've ever watched somebody fail miserably at rappelling, right, yes. like, that is what it looks like the whole time. Um, and, and it's hysterical. And, and you know, it, 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 as a guy, when you first get a Swiss seat on, you're like, oh, wait, oh, whoa, uh, this is a little bit more, not, not as comfortable as I thought it was going to be. So, you know, but you get it because you've seen it. So if you haven't seen Renaissance Man and you're in the military, just go watch the rappel scene with Danny DeVito. You'll, you'll crack up. So it's well worth it. All right. So you commissioned in uh, 2000, you said, right? Uh, no, I joined oh, uh, uh, ROTC in 2000. I joined sorry. college in 2000. Okay. I commissioned in 2004. So when 9-11 happens, like, were, were I, I mean, obviously you weren't, as you just said, but were you talking to classmates or like, yo, I got to get out of this. I got, I, I don't want to do this. Um, exactly. Actually. Like, and, um, so two things when it relates to nine 11. So I grew up in the DC area, so probably no different than you. All I could think about was like, you know, the Pentagon was getting attacked too. was like, how does this, my family lived in Arlington, Virginia. I'm like, what, none of us knew how sweeping the attack was, right? That it was not just targeted at one particular building, but potentially a region. And so I spent a lot of that day um, after seeing the the Twin Towers hit, trying to like 
get in contact with family, but basically all the cell towers being overloaded and like not really knowing what it meant for, you know, not just like my military career and future, but just like my personal reality. Um, But I will tell you, I had two categories of um, maybe three categories of ROTC colleagues. There There were the guys who wanted to like, get out of college, enlist, and go into the fights. <laughs> there are people like me who are like, all right, I'm already like on this path, so I'll just stay on this path. I guess maybe I'm going to go to war now. And then there were the people who didn't think that they were ever going to go to war, who were like freaking out. <laughs> and which blew my mind. Um, and honestly, it was a very formative experience. Um, you know, it blew my mind because of course, when I signed up, I considered that war might be something that would happen even if I didn't know when. Um, But I also kind of made a promise to myself in that moment that I wanted to be the type of person or leader who met the moments, you know? And to me, some of my colleagues, even if they're ignorant about whether they could go to war or not, like in that moment, they should have said like, all right, I guess this is what destiny had in store for me. And I'm going to rise to this challenge. Um, and so, you know, of course, none of us can, can influence other people's behavior, but I think that that, or actually I know for sure, that's the moment where I realized and made a promise to myself about the kind of person who I wanted to be, to always be the person who, who met the moment uh, and what it demanded of me, whether I could have predicted it or not, you know? Mm-hmm. So- Did you have colleagues who, who freaked out similarly? Well, I was already commissioned. I commissioned, so I am older than you. I commissioned in 99, so... Um... <laughs> Despite this youthful uh, exuberance and, ex- and, and exterior, um, I, I yeah I'm old. Uh, so you know, I mean, it was I, I've told the story a hundred times. You know, it was like when I was going through college, when I was a senior in college, there was career day, and all my friends were going, and they're like, "Are you going to the career fair?" And I'm like, "No," and they're like, "Why?" And I'm like, "Because I have to go in the army." And they said to me, well, "Why don't you get a real job?" Right? Like that's in a pre nine eleven world. That's that's what it was. I mean, you know, I can remember. My active duty, want me, want me to tell you how old I really am? I think my active duty starting salary as a second lieutenant was $23,000 a year. I think that's what it was back then. So um, we've come a long way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it was just, it was a different world, you know. Um, and, and, you know, once 9-11 happened, you know, I remember, you know, and, and, it, and the crazy part is, too, I'll, I'll back it up even more. I actually got put off active duty prior to my four-year commitment because the Clinton administration was downsizing the active military. They brought it down to the lowest levels since pre-World War II uh, because there wasn't a need for it. Like, everybody was at peacetime. The economy was great. And, you know, it was like, you know, nothing's going on in the world. And so they were were sending people off active duty. I remember people went to West Point were getting sent off active duty early. I mean, a lot of us ROTC guys were were being sent to finish out the rest of our term in the the Guard and the Reserves because they were just downsizing. And so they were just plucking, you know, the Army does stuff, just plucking people at random. You get orders and here you go. Okay, you're you're going to the Guard. So I I left active duty three months prior to 9-11. And then... When I got to my guard unit after 9-11 happened, the first thing I did is I drove to the unit and said, okay, where are we going? What are we doing? Like, let's go. You know, I, I was – because, again, a- after I spent a day and a half trying to find everybody uh, and get a hold yeah. of everybody um, from New York, and, and, you know, my brother had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge uh, to get home. Um, you know, I, I, had, I had a bunch of friends who were on Wall Street that day that I couldn't get in touch with for hours and hours and hours. Um, it was, a, you know, for anybody who lived through it, obviously – uh, as far as the New Yorkers are concerned, it was, a, it was you know, it was hell. Um, 
But anyway, so uh, you end up getting commissioned, and you go when after your commission, you go where? I mean, are you are you straight to active duty here? It took a little while for me to go on orders to my officer basic course, okay. um, but I graduated in May, and I was headed to Fort Lee in September. Um, excuse me, I was headed to Fort Lee in. June and then in September was headed to Fort Carson and by the day after Thanksgiving was headed to Iraq. <laughs> wow, it was all that quick. Yes, you know, when I was in um OBC, everyone's orders were getting shifted because it was 2004, so you remember we sent everybody over when we thought it was going to be like shocking on 2003 and then purse tempo couldn't keep up with the continuation of the war, so they took everybody's orders, most everybody's. I was on track to be at Fort Carson. And we were already going to deploy, but most of my other colleagues um, got shifted to Fort Stewart, Fort Campbell, and Fort Drum, uh, because those were the next big units that were going to deploy. Yeah, 100, and 103 ID, 101st, and yeah, uh, they were all going Yeah, there, there weren't enough bodies in the ranks, um, so they had to ship them over there. And then, you know, even when I deployed, I'd be curious about your, um, uh, your experience with your guard unit, Mark, but like by the time I got deployed, I was active duty, I got... Um, attached to a reserve unit that was what they call P3, but like barely enough strength to deploy. And even at P3, a significant portion of my soldiers weren't actually like drilling reservists. There were many IRR, IRR folks yep. who didn't even realize they were still on IRR. Yeah, yeah. And like really not thrilled that they were there. So, um, <sighs> Talk about a leadership challenge. Yeah, ain't, ain't that a bitch? Uh, that 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 letter must have been fun. It's funny because I deployed one of the majors I worked for. She got pulled out of the IRR uh, and and had no you know had no idea she was there. Um, you know, from my from my experience, my first deployment, you know, my guard unit, it was a Hodge. There was a, what they, it was an RFF, a request for forces, and it it came from okay. the special ops community and. They just put out an RFF. They needed a platoon of this, a platoon of this, and a platoon of this, and, you know, these guys to do this. And it came down to DA, and then DA eventually sent it to the Maryland Guard at the time, uh, and Maryland was charged with putting the headquarters together. And then eventually they took three different platoons from three different states of National Guard and put me as the commander of that company uh, to go forward for uh, for, as the commander of the RFF, which, you know, was a – what they call it? Um, the FLE, the forward logistics element is what we were, the flea, um, not to be confused with red hot chili peppers flea. Yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> so, and that's how it was put together. I, I sort of had the same thing. I had the same leadership challenges. I had a platoon from California, a platoon from Puerto Rico and a platoon from Maryland. And the platoon from Maryland was plucked from all over the state. It wasn't even like one platoon that was in a unit. They just started filling bodies and slots wherever they could go. So, uh, well, you know, so I was like, I was an active duty platoon leader because there was only one platoon leader in this company, but the company was from Saginaw, Michigan, but no different than your unit. They drew from across like the, uh, what do they call them? RRCs. I yep. forget what RRCs stand for, but like I had soldiers from everywhere from like Wisconsin to Chicago to Minnesota, all a part of this unit that was actually based in Michigan. That was P3. And then we actually had an active duty unit that was P3 as well. And so when our jobs got contracted, my platoon then ended up being a part of this other active duty unit that was doing convoy security uh. um, to basically make everything work. Well, we did convoy security and then force protection around Taji, Iraq. But um, 
Yeah, it, so it was a it was a wild time, and there just weren't enough uh, bodies to do all the work. You you're know? a transportation <laughs> officer by trade. Uh, I was quartermaster, quartermaster and then, okay. you know, probably no different thing. You became right. a multifunctional logistician pretty quickly. <laughs> yay, yay, yay. Wonderful terms. Um, that mean nothing, by the way. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in that world, if you can lead, you can lead. If you can't, you can't. Which sort of brings me to my next question. Um, did you think you were ready for all this? I mean, you had such – at this point, you have little training, right? You had little on-the-job experience. You barely had any time – to, to acclimate to active duty life and everything else, and you're getting ready right on a plane to go to Iraq. Are you overwhelmed by any of this? No. You know, I think um, maybe it's, you know, as they say, the youth is, waste, youth is wasted on the young. Like, you're so naive at that age. Like, you don't – it took a while to set in sort of like the the real sort of like – risk that I was putting myself through. I I don't know if it's similar for you, but you know, it it, it is sobering at 22 to fill out your will. I don't know how many other 22 year olds are filling out their will during, um, you know, what is the SRP? Yep. And so like, and it's so it's, uh, it's funny. It's, you know, when you do it in that kind of mode, it's like fill in the blank. It's not. I I only only chuckle because I can recall, I was 27. I can recall doing the dumbest shit. Like I'll leave this person, my TV and this person can have my stereo. Like it's your life completely changes. You get married, you have kids. You're like, who gives a shit about a TV and a stereo, right? I'm trying to leave my entire estate of everything of life. And you're going to take care of my bills and you're going to put the kids through college, you know? And I'm like, here, have my TV. You know I mean? It's just, it's a, it's a power of attorney for my things. I don't know what there was in my bank account at the time. So you realize how much, how much my sisters were going to get a great payday if my SGLI came through at some point, but, um, but you know, for me, so like that was kind of sobering, but for most of my deployment, even God, it wasn't even probably a month into being a Taji where there was a Bradley that hit, um, some daisy chain howitzer, um, rounds mm-hmm. right outside of our base. It got blown up, flipped, you know, all the soldiers died. We had a huge combo blackout as they called it, even being that close to danger. Um, you know, I still wasn't intimidated at all. Uh, warehousing mission turns into convoy security mission, obviously much more dangerous. Uh, I was always the lead gun truck when I went out on my missions, S- you know, still didn't sink in. Um, you know, I think you have a really good fight or flight. I say you, I did. When I would go out of the wire, it was just about like game time, you know, and focused on the mission. It's like, you don't have a, uh, like if you if you let fear be a thing, you can't be effective, you know. So I don't know. I guess I innately have that switch that flips on. It's just like fucking. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I... Or die when you go out there. Mm-hmm. I think the only really the only time where really kind of where I was really set back, I lost. Um, you know, we lost two guys the first time I deployed. Um, uh, a fellow platoon leader who's the guy who's on my wrist every single day. Um, and then a, a PFC who was just shy of his 19th birthday, um, a little later in that deployment in my first deployment. And so those are the only two days where I really felt kind of what was at stake. Um, you know, otherwise I just think like maybe it's compartmentalizing or like part survival skill that you just, you can't consider it. If you consider it and all of what it means, then you just couldn't be effective, you know? Um, 
So it's, it's, I don't even know if I like felt fear or whether like I, my body wouldn't allow me to feel fear because if I did, it would mean that I would succumb to it, you know? Right. So no, I mean, look, I, I, don't I, 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 I've said, I've shared this plenty of times. Um, you know, there were days, like I, it was the same thing for me, you know, like I'm this logistics guy and I end up training an entire Iraqi support battalion in the ISOF brigade. And, uh, you know, I ran missions outside the wire five days a week. I, I might've logged 6,000 miles over the, the roads of Baghdad over the course of, of 15 months, um, you know, and, and got hit multiple times. And I, it was just a job I was never meant to do. Right? I don't think that it's just one of those things you, you end up getting thrown, you know, in, into the frying pan or into the fire, whatever you call it. And, uh, same for me. I mean, but there are days where I was like, oh, today's the day. We're getting hit. We have to get hit. Like, how, how do we not get hit? Like, you know, like I'm a gambling guy. Eventually, you're going to crack yeah. out. Like, seven's going to pop up. And I'd be freaked out. And I would just walk around the building, stay in the corner by myself, say a quick prayer, take a deep exhale, and then game face on. Because I never wanted my Joes to ever see me sweating. And, and much like you, that yeah. switch flips. And I was locked in. And I never thought about it again. But... I'd be lying if I said I I didn't need a new pair of underwear certain mornings when I right, right, right when I got started loading up the trucks because I'm like okay yeah yeah today might be the day today feels like it's going to be the day um, you know and it's usually those days where nothing happens it's the days where you least expect it that shit goes haywire but uh, you know totally I mean the fellow platoon leader who we lost we lost in the in the, the middle of the day you know um, we had started running a lot of our missions at night but you you would expect expect sort of the cover of night to be, um, you know, better for our adversaries than, you know, the afternoon. Um, but it turns out, you know, car bombs are, are very discreet. <laughs> and so they can blow up, you know, in the middle of the day, almost easier than, uh, you know, an IED or roadside bomb in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I can relate. There's uh, the moment where I was most scared. Nothing actually ended up happening. Uh, it was out of, outside of a base called Mamadia, um, or I guess a city called Mamadia, yep. just south of Baghdad. South of Baghdad where yeah. I've been there. We, we got stopped because of the way that the Marines had to let us into this particular base. We got halted outside and like literally the entire town went dark. Like all the lights went off and you could see people on like the buildings. And I thought for sure we were in for an ambush in that moment. Um, but we weren't, and we ended up, you know, getting inside the base and, and all was good in that moment. But uh, there are those moments where like, you just feel so exposed and so vulnerable that can, that can do a number on you. But, um, but yeah, you know, I will say I'm glad uh, I, it took a while. I don't know about for you after coming back to not have like the hypervigilance of, when you're going on the street all the time, looking at every dead carcass on the road, every piece of trash on the road. Oh, yeah. When I first got back to the States, um, because you had, you know, the survival skills that you adapt to in that mode, like I, it took me a, a long, long time to not drive on a U.S. interstate and not be kind of like overly Paranoid is the wrong word, but hyper vigilant about every single little thing that was on the side of the road. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, I, I one of the worst flashbacks I've ever had, and it's almost like the flashbacks sometimes are um, more unnerving than anything else because I remember them so clearly. Uh, I had been home I, I, maybe a month, 
because uh, I know it was summertime, and we were my my sister and I were headed out to go to a bar on Long Island somewhere for a couple of drinks, and she was driving down a road, and this is in pure suburbia, uh, in a town called Garden City uh, on Long Island. So if anybody just wants a point of reference, if you've been been around Garden City, it looks like every you know picture of suburbia you see on TV. But it was a it yeah. was a wide road. It was like three lanes on each side, no divider or anything down the middle. And I was sitting in the back seat, and I'm leaning forward between my sister who's driving and her friend who's sitting in the front seat. And I put my head down, and I remember when I picked it up, I mean, everything was brown. And all I saw was the roads of Baghdad in front of me. Uh, and every, literally, it would felt like three to five seconds. And I literally just screamed in the back seat and threw myself back. Like, you know, it was just, and they both turned back and looked at me. And, and what happened? I'm like, nothing. And I can remember my heart just pounding and racing um, through my head from that level of hypervigilance because everything on the road was always a threat. And even to this day, I mean, you know, we talk about this on the show all the time and dealing with, you know, PTSD and and unpacking all this stuff. I mean, there are certain um, things that I do nowadays still after all these years from deployments that are second nature to me. The way I scan a room, where I sit, how I position myself and everything else, choke points, points of egress and entry. And, you know, I remember talking to the the VA therapist about this and telling her, look, that happens literally almost instantaneously when I walk into a room. If I walk into a restaurant or doctor's office or wherever I have a place that I've never been before, it happens like that for me. And she sat there and began to explain to me, well, if you do this and then you remind yourself this, that, and the other. And I said, those things are all great and they make a ton of sense. (laughs) <laughs> but it feels like it takes a really long time when I could just do that in a matter of a half a second and I feel at peace and at ease. And that's kind of the conundrum of what you're talking about, that, that, that high level of stress and anxiety. You know, I don't want to get out of that vigilance mode because it makes me feel safe. It makes mm-hmm. me feel prepared. It makes me feel when the, when the ish hits the fan, I know exactly I'm three steps ahead of everybody else, you know, and – even though it's highly unlikely that me sitting down for breakfast in a Waffle House, uh, yeah. anything like that would remotely happen. It, for me, it's just it's it's a it's a way of life. Yeah, if, if two vets go out for a beer or a meal, um, they're bound to fight for who gets to put their back up against the wall. You know, <laughs> <laughs> who gets to face the door? Yep. The only time I back down is is somebody who I can trust to make sure that they've got my six. Yep. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, I've never had a flashback like you mentioned, but I can relate. Um, you know, there was a time when I was living in Washington, D.C. Um, I, I was driving down to a place called Haynes Point where there's a golf driving range with a couple of friends of mine. Um, and it was actually this time of year where the Cherry Blossom Festival was in town. And so I was stopped on the road just before you get to Haynes Point. And there are literally so many tourists in town that as we're stopped on the road, there's tourists just like flooding through the, the street across to, you know, the other part of the street that they're trying to get to. And I looked at my friends and I was like, don't be concerned about this um, or don't be too concerned about this. But I just have to voice that I'm slightly concerned that one of these people are going to blow themselves up right now. <laughs> and don't let it freak you out. But I just have to sort of I have to name it. I know that it's kind of an irrational fear, but that's just kind of how I'm functioning still. Um, But that's how I was. Like I literally, the first, the only thing I could think of when this flood of people were coming across the town was that one of them was going to blow themselves up. And I know that I'm in the United States and Washington DC and like 
that wasn't a real thing that was going to happen, but that's all I could, I, I, that's what I felt like I needed to be prepared for it to happen just based on, you know, enough months overseas and being conditioned that way. Not to divert to a tangent, but again, I, I, I feel like it's worth mentioning because you just brought it, you know, I, I, I'm not a therapist by any stretch. I'm not licensed. Well, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not clinical. I'm, I'm certainly clinically. Um, but you know, uh, I, I, again, I would sort of argue that that, that voicing that, that made you feel a little bit safer, right? The, the same routine that I go through that makes me – the idea that we should fight that to me, sometimes I don't know that I necessarily agree with. And I get the point. You said it the way – it's highly unlikely anything is going to happen. But in yeah. my world, for my anxiety to dial back, it's easier for me to do that than to not, right? It's easier yeah. to voice that concern – than to not to dial back our own personal anxiety. The problem is, is that you say that to me, and I totally understand what you're saying. I say mm-hmm. it to you, you totally, the rest of our group around us doesn't understand that. And that's why it's hard to voice it. And that's why it's hard to, to bring it to the forefront and feel that way, because now we are giving unfamiliar feelings to people who can't relate. Yeah, I mean, um, it was funny. So I've done some teaching over the last couple of years, and I was getting together together with a couple of my students who I was advising on an independent study. Um, and we we're together at uh, like a local Panera or something. And a, uh, I think it was a garbage truck picked up a, a trash can and then dropped the, the trash can down. And I reacted to it because I don't, I don't scan for trash on the side of the roads anymore, but I still react to like loud noises kind of in a like yeah. check, check and see what's happening. But what I can relate to you on that. So first of all, my students were like, oh, do you have a little bit of PTSD? And I was like, I don't think really. I was like, but I, I'm okay with me still having the muscle memory to like go into action when a threat might exist, you know? So I don't want it to rule my life. Um, but, I, you know, I'm okay. Hey, you know, like, listen, we're living in a country where there are far too many school shootings. You know, I want to be the person that if I'm near that, that like snaps into action, not the person who, you know, as, as we've seen, in, unfortunately in some of these instances who like runs away from it or is like paralyzed by it, you yeah. know? So at the end of the day, if that's a, I, I see that as a positive consequence of my service yeah, for whatever. No, I agree, agree. Totally. I, I, I can't, uh, can't argue with you. I want to return to the deployment here for a moment again. So you get to Iraq when this first deployment went in 04. Yeah, I deployed the, the day after Thanksgiving in, uh, in 2004. Yeah, and I was there through October of 2005. So um, we, were, we were there at the same time because I arrived in March of 05. And I can't okay. – I took – I probably crossed paths in the, in the Taji Chow Hall. That was the best part about going there was uh, the, the, the Chow Hall and Taji getting breakfast there. Uh, I, I did it. Yeah, and we had um, – you know, it was still being built up, but I can understand with some of your work because there were two sides of Taji. There was like the American side and then there was Iraqi side. So I'm sure that's what brought you up there. I was on the Iraqi side mostly, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember the, 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 the tank graveyard was was the highlight of Taji, right? Uh, I'm going to send you a picture after this of me taking a picture on the, the tank graveyard because everybody would go and spray paint stuff on yep. it. Yep. Um, one of my best friends, I, I spray painted happy birthday to her and like sat on top of it and took a picture. That's awesome. For the civilians who don't know, Taji uh, has a little, a little tank graveyard of all the Iraqi tanks that were blown up during desert storm and destroyed during desert storm. They just put them all in this one spot and left them there. Never took them down. I guess they use them as like a cannibalization point for 
uh, equipment or whatever. But they were all there. And, of course, as soon as the Americans got to Taji, what did we do? Deface them because, you know, hey, uh, we're here. Why not? Yeah. Um, if, if, we don't, if we don't urinate on our territory like a dog, we're, we're, not, we're not American. Uh, so anyway. But, yeah, I mean, when you lost your fellow platoon leader uh, and you talked about how it, how it had hit you, um, was, there, was there any sense of thinking that, you know, maybe – uh, you don't want to do this anymore, or does it sort of embolden you a little bit? Like, you know, does it change your feeling of patriotism, your love for the military, everything else, when you lose somebody close to you? Uh, the impact that had on me was profound. Mm-hmm. Um, so since you were there at that time, we, we lost them in April of 2005. There were car bombs every day or every other day yeah. in the Baghdad AO. Um one of those took his life uh, and injured two of his soldiers, you know, uh, a great deal. And one of them was, you know, the gunner. So when you have a car bomb go off, it's, he got torched and was in Fort Sam as quickly as we could get him there to try and heal from that. Um, I, I would say two things. Um, it is a profound experience to have somebody lose their life doing exactly what you would have done in their shoes. Um you know, at the time, well, actually still, you know, we had escalation of force rules. So he ended up bumping the car right when it blew up. But before that, he, his gunner shouted at him through rocks and, you know, water bottles. They tried to wave him off the road. His, his last step before actually firing at the car that otherwise looked like a civilian vehicle was to just bump it on the bumper. Um, he was the lead gun truck. I was always the lead gun truck. Same. And so... It's very sobering to know that, like, if I was on that mission, I would have done exactly what he would have done, and it could have been me. Um, you know, to your other point, I feel like no different than when I was in ROTC, I made a promise to myself that I was always going to meet the moment. Um, the promise I made myself in that moment was, like, to, to live a life worth worthy of his sacrifice, that, like... I can't take back the fact that we're at war. And at this point, like all of us were a little confused about what the deal was with this particular war, but like, I can't take that back. I'm going to still, you know, bring it every day for my soldiers, but also as, as life goes forward from this point forward, like I need to make that dude proud. Like I need to make sure that the life that I live and the way that I contribute from this point forward is worthy of his sacrifice. Um, And I think that's still something I'm trying to live up to today. Is there a moment uh, where emotionally you kind of lose it about the whole thing, whether it was on the deployment itself or after? Um, in all honesty, it was actually the second time uh, we lost a soldier. When the, and that when the time was, was – so I, I originally had a, a, uh, a warehousing mission. I had four warehouses. My battalion commander still wanted me to be an accountable officer for those warehouses – while my platoon was on the road doing gun trucks. So I essentially was doing two jobs because you don't go get your platoon leader time to like, just leave your troops to somebody else, you know? So I would be in the warehouses during the day on the road at night with my soldiers. But the only missions that it was conceivable for me to pick up, if I was doing both of those were only the ones that were in the Baghdad AO. So where I could go out and back during the night. Um, And I had a, a, so many of my soldiers were on a mission that was a much longer mission where we lost PFC Kilpatrick. Um, and what kind of broke me, I guess, in that moment is you just feel so out of control. 
you know? Um, danger is what it is, as we've recently, you know, discussed. Um, but I'd rather be on the mission with them than realizing that, it, you know, this time, um, one of my soldiers, this was his, he, he didn't uh, get injured or killed, but this was his um, second, like, near miss. It was the second time he was in a vehicle that got hit. Um, and so for me, the stress there was a little more around being out of control, but also kind of resenting my leadership for not allowing me to be where I felt like I needed to be, which was on the mission with my soldiers in that moment. Um, and so that was almost harder than, you know, being in the line of fire when I was in the line of fire, if that yeah. makes sense. No, I mean, listen, um, as much as combat is random, you, you, there's a sense of control that you have. Just by being yeah. there and being in the fight, even though you have no control, you, you believe you're, you, you talk yourself into believing I have a rifle. I'm better at this than they are. And, and I have the upper hand and I'm going to leverage that to, to, to a decisive victory kind of deal. Yeah. I mean, I'll be the first to say too, that like, as much as I know what being in combat was like for me, like, I don't know what it was like for our loved ones, Mark, you know, because to the point, you know, that we knew what the actual threat we were confronting every single day was mm -hmm. uh, or for moment to moment all of our loved ones who are back here at home can only fear the worst that's all they can do you know um and so yeah there there is a little bit of a a freedom if that makes sense uh -huh. of like knowing kind of I like mean, the, the, the in, is, and, or being able to control the way that you respond you know uh, what, when you talk about that, it just kind of makes me think, I mean, imagine the things that you did that you never told your parents about, um, that, you know, it's just like one of those things where, you know, Hey, mom would probably disapprove of this, um, yes. kind of deal. Uh, for me, it was the one time we went in a, uh, regular civilian vehicle in civilian clothes to go do some paperwork mission at the green zone. And we decided that it was better to not take an up armored Humvee just to drive as civilians, uh, and wear concealable body armor and everything else. Yeah. That was probably not one of our wisest decisions. Um, neither here nor there, but you know, to that point, it's like on the flip side and I've always thought about this and maybe one day I would make this an actual episode on the show, but like to sit down with my mother and ask her what she thought about, because I've never asked her that question. I've never bothered to ask her how scared were you? What were you thinking? Yeah. When the phone rang, did you ever think that it was going to be that call? When, when the knock on the door was there, were you ever, you know, like, I, and it's funny because that's like the only thing I really get protective about over my service. You know, you could say a lot of things about me. Maybe some of them are true. Maybe some of them aren't. You could say a lot of things about my, my service and, you know, oh, you weren't as bad as you thought you were. I, I generally don't get bothered about, about any of that. What I get yeah. bothered about, what I get defensive about is – the fact that I had my mother probably up at night, every night, putting her head on the pillow, wondering if she was ever going to get the worst phone call she could ever imagine, you know, and living with that fear day in, like living with the fear of combat. And I've said this repeatedly, as difficult as combat is, it's probably the easiest thing you can generally do. Like just keeping yourself alive is compartmentalizing at its finest folk, laser focus on the task, trust your training, stay alive. That's really easy when all things, when you, when you lay it all out, we're good at that, right? Like emotional life and dealing with relationships and jobs and people complaining and children and pets and everything else, that drains the <laughs> hell out of you. Combat's easy in that sense. But on the flip side of it, again, the emotional toll that it must have taken on my parents wondering what was happening to me 
Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I could ever comprehend that. Yeah, me neither. Um, I agree with you too. You know, it's funny. We have life situations where there are like very clear imperatives and the imperatives make, uh, ironically, even if it's really high stakes, make navigating situations easier. Yep. Um, but, you know, I can't, I can't relate either. You know, I, I sort of, um, you know, I was young and going to do what my country called me to do. And I had already accepted that this came with service. Um, so to me, it was pretty like, all right, put your rucksack on and let's go, you know, ship out. Um, that said, you know, when I went to Fort Carson, um, I, I left for Fort Carson in September and because I knew I was going to be on order so quickly, I just said my goodbyes in September, even though I didn't leave until November with my family uh, and my youngest sister at the time couldn't go to school that day. She was so sick. Um, and I, I couldn't really relate to it, but you know, to the extent that like she was so as a, I don't know if she was, she was probably a freshman in high school at the time, but she was so fearful for me that like, she needed a sick day from school because she was so anxious about me leaving. Um, has, has that left an indelible mark on me? And it is something that I still, I still can't relate to, and nor yeah. do I know if I ever will. Um, and then, you know, I'm I'm glad that they never got a knock on the door. You know, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, it's and I, I have so much um, respect for those who had to open up the door and deal with that. Not just because, 100%, yeah. you know, of course we all respect those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, but it's, um, it is very hard to be the person who receives the notice about that and then has to carry it with them through the rest of their lives, you know? And I feel like we don't, we at times don't adequately recognize the gold star families out there in the world as much as we do the KIAs, you know? Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. Um, you you jarred my memory several times on this thing, um, but you talked about your sister. Other than like mm-hmm. you know family members, deaths or anything, you know family related. Only time I've ever seen my older brother cry was when uh, the two times that I had to leave for deployment. It's the only time I've ever seen him cry. He's been very good about doing all that stuff on his own. Um, yeah. Saw saw him lose it twice, so it's it's just uh, it's it. You don't really. <sighs> I guess humbling is the right word. I mean, they're your siblings. They're your family members, right? But you don't realize yeah. the impact you have on them um, and what you're about to do has on them. Uh, and maybe we haven't talked about this enough. This is a really interesting conversation. But, um, you know, what it does to your family, your service and the life that you've chosen. You know, we, we talk about sacrifice, right? We make sacrifices, yeah. or so, but so do fam- families make immense sacrifices um, in, in, in devoting their loved ones to combat. Totally. And I don't, you know, I think it was lost on me when I was younger that like I was making a choice, not just for Allison, but I was making a choice that involves so many other people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. I wasn't thinking about that when I was like going to try and live my dream when I was younger, but you know, I, especially as somebody who sees myself in a lot of ways as like, you know, I still try to live by the army values as a selfless servant. Um, like I, I didn't realize that I was, you know, sort of selfishly taking my family into my service when I made that choice, you know? Um, and of course they supported me and they wanted me to 
live my dream, et cetera. Um, but I, I think it was lost on me in, in my youth that the decision that I was making for myself was a decision that I was making for everyone who cared about me too, you know? Yeah, I, it's, it's, <laughs> the impact is, is far and deep to say the least. Um, so you finish that deployment, you get home uh, in, in, in 2005. Now, obviously you have service time left. Is any of the excited young Allison Jaslow who wants to go be the first female four-star general, is that person still the same person at the end of this first deployment? Um, so I was pretty beat down, to be honest, at the end of the first deployment. Um, Physically, I emotionally, still, morally? Like, what are we talking here? Yeah, I mean, I still – I've been in some really intense situations ever since, but it's still, like, number one. Um, it was in part – you know, I mentioned before – I was the burning the candle at both ends, trying to do two jobs, you know, being an accountable officer during the day and oversee contractors and then also go on the road with my soldiers at night. Wasn't taking care of myself. Um, but I think I was more kind of like emotionally beat down than anything else. And that didn't even have to do with the losses that we did. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept that the army that I put on a pedestal for so long, that, that it would have a leader that would ask me to sort of choose between my soldiers and a duty as an accountable officer, you know? So from a leadership perspective, um, that's the first time I can remember being like kind of really disappointed in my own leadership. And I think that that kind of, well, I know for sure it wore me down emotionally by the end of that deployment. That said, you know, when you're 23, you can bounce back from a lot. So, you know, I had fun as a first Lieutenant back in uh, Fort Carson. I, uh, it, you know, it's a great place to be stationed, got some skiing time in, um, that season. And so by the time I deployed again, which was January of 2007, so I was home for about, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, 14 months or something there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, by the time I deployed in January of 2007, I had totally rebounded from that deployment, still planned to stay in for a career. Um, you know, was ready for my next mission and you know the wars were still very top of mind not just for the american public but those who were serving um and so you know deploying again just kind of wasn't a thing for me um i was ready to court, you know basically saddle up and go again um and at the time didn't know it was going to be 15 months during the surge but yeah. you know figured i was set for another year's deployment in 2007. Um, and still at that, at that juncture, it wasn't until during that deployment that I decided to make the, the decision to get out. Let me ask you a, a semi loaded question here, and I'm sure you've gotten it before, but how much of you on that first deployment um, was not only fighting the combat and fighting the leadership, but also trying to prove yourself as a girl in a man's army? Because it's a real thing. You guys all had to deal with it. I mean, it was, I have to work harder than everybody else. I have to stay up. I have to push farther just to prove that I am one of the guys. Um, and and how much of a toll did that take on you? Um, you know, I think it's something that at the time I wasn't super conscious of. Um, you know, you just want to be seen as one of the guys, if you will. You don't realize sort of like the um, the unstated <laughs> you know, rationale behind that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if it took a toll on me, to be honest with you. Like I just happen to have a personality where, you know, I think a lot of people would 
characterize me as pretty tough these days, but back then, man, I had very sharp elbows. <laughs> so I think from a personality perspective, um, I was just a good fit to kind of like quickly earn respect and not have to fight too hard for it. Um, and, you know, I think it's been a part of my life's mission from that point on. And even as a vet though, to really stick up for, for other women who are, you know, who don't as easily earn the respect based on just how their personality is too, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, or, you know, maybe it was, you know, fortunate timing. Um, but thankfully, you know, I think I also like, I held a high bar for myself in terms of performance, regardless of what my gender was. And I also held other people to a high bar too. You know, I'll give you a good example. Um, I didn't realize this at the time, how profound it was, but uh, when I got promoted to captain during my second deployment, I had, um, she retired as Sergeant Major Sidnor, but at the time was Sergeant First Class Sidnor, promote me, pin me. Um, she was the person who I respected the most in my unit. Um, and of course was an enlisted uh, member of our unit. And I didn't realize that like officers just didn't do that. <laughs> like that many officers don't ask. And she, you know, one of the greatest honors of my lifetime is she asked me a couple of years ago to actually be the officer that retired her and didn't pick somebody who was in her serving unit and I learned on that occasion how remarkable it was that I asked her to promote me at that time. But to me, you know, it's just about like setting a level of excellence and like whoever meets that bar meets that bar. And I want to set the bar myself, you know? So I think when I was in the military and hopefully ever since, like I've just been in the mode of regardless of my gender or my background and how I got in there, I just want to be setting the bar of excellence and sort of challenging everybody else to meet it regardless of who we are uh, so as as previously noted i wish the military was more of a meritocracy in that way unfortunately it isn't but right. I, I naively was trying to navigate it as, as it was for the time that i was in so does that mean uh, and it's a sort of a dovetail question does that mean that you were able to mostly avoid harassment um and and you know sharp issues from males around your career uh largely i would say that like I tolerated, and I don't think anybody would guilt me for this, for, like, uh, maybe, like, language that didn't create a good culture around me, though, that may have caused consequences for other women. A really good example is, like, you know, I remember dudes referring to other women as barracks whores, you know? <laughs> and you probably shouldn't do that um, if you want to have a culture that is, you know, welcoming and supportive of women. If you want to have a culture that's not going to lend itself to harassment or sexual assault. I definitely know I tolerated terms like that being tossed around in like information. <laughs> um, again, I don't think anybody would fault me for sort of like not speaking up in that moment for the sake of my own success, you know, um, in for the ire of the job. In retrospect, do you wish you did speak up in those moments? Um, and there's not a right answer to that, Allison. It really isn't. I mean, you know, it, it's that's why it's a loaded I'm question. I'm not the kind of person who uh, lives with a lot of regret, mm -hmm. but I, I will be accountable for a certain lack of courage in a moment like that because I could have. You know, I, I, and I chose, I chose, I appreciate your honesty and, and, and there's no judgment here at all. I mean, you know, yeah. 
when I when when we talk to females on the show, unfortunately, I have to address it. Like it, it's the if I don't, I'm I'm doing a disservice to the fact that it's still going on, you know. And I'm almost just ignoring it, like it doesn't. No, it it still exists, and it's a big problem. Yeah. And and the more we call it to light and shine light on it, um, hopefully, the more it, it, it becomes commonplace that. Hi, don't use the term barracks whore, moron. Like, you know, yeah. there's other words. Well, Be smarter than that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's something that inspires my advocacy being on the outside, though, now, too. Because I just, I know, like, your job as a soldier is to fall in line, right? So I know how hard it can be. And I feel like those of us who are on the outside, who have the freedom of having our own voice, et cetera, um, who don't have to choose between your own, you know, professional success and, like, maybe saying or doing the right thing in a moment like that. I feel like it's incumbent on those of the rest of us who have that freedom to be a voice for those who maybe find themselves in that position um, in, in whatever scenario it is. So I guess maybe I'm still sort of like actively engaged in sort of payback mode, if you will, by doing <laughs> what I can from the outside. <laughs> I like, I like it. Um, Fast forward back to the uh, second deployment. Um, on the macro level, better or worse than the first? Macro level, better. Um, micro level? I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't burning the candle at both ends. Um, I was in a staff role, so you know, definitely less danger, although, you know, of course, rockets and mortars came at all of us but when we were sitting ducks. Um, uh, I also, you know, I learned a lesson from my first deployment. Like the army can take 15 or 18 hours of the day out of me. Um, but you know, go to the gym, damn it. And I got in really great shape while I was there. I was like, I'm at least going to do that for myself while I was there. So I think, and as, as you probably know, the more you're taking care of your, you know, physical health in that way, the more you can endure all of the stress, et cetera. And I think I wasn't doing that in my first deployment, um, you know, on a micro level, I, I suffered more leadership disappointment again. Um, and this time really up close, you know, I was a battalion adjutant. And so myself and our executive officer at the time did a really good job. I think obfuscating poor leadership to the rest of the battalion, because we wanted the rest of the battalion to keep its morale high, et cetera. But because we were so close in proximity to what we felt like wasn't the type of leadership that, that we wanted, um, it, it really it, it, it hit our morale, you know, and we, and we could thankfully be in that together. Um, and, and with some of my other uh, colleagues who were you know closer to it or had more insight, we could be in that together. But, you know, many, many of my peers, I think were outstanding officers and maybe would have stayed in for an entire career that I, you know, as I hope to do, um, but when you experience that and you feel like, and especially for me, I've experienced it twice now at this point, it's like, okay, am I going to have like terrible leadership every other year in deployments, you know, in combat for the next 20 years. And then maybe I will get to be a battalion commander myself and finally get to make an impact on an entire battalion. And so to me, the, the calculus was like, you know, I almost don't want to have to be patient that long to kind of be the leader that I wish I had. And that maybe I can make a greater impact outside of the organization, outside of the bureaucracy um, in ways that I hope that I can say I have was, you know, looking back. 
Was there a seminal moment that sort of hit you and it was like, okay, this is the last straw for me and I'm out? Um, it wasn't a seminal moment. It, Mm -hmm. it really was a struggle for me. I think if anybody can, whether it's this dream, but if anybody can relate to having to like, let one of your dreams go, it's, you know, from eighth grade when I was 13. So I'm like 25 at the time. That was my identity. Like that was going to be my entire life. And so it was almost like a grieving process to kind of like let that dream down um, I also had, as I mentioned, uh, Sergeant First Class Sidnor was the kind of enlisted leader who was like, ma'am, we need officers like you. Like, please don't get out, you know? And so I had, you know, encouragement, not just coming from like the colonels who didn't want to look bad because of all their company grade officers were getting out, but like some of my soldiers who, I don't know a single person who doesn't say that the best thing about serving was their troops. Um, you know, I had soldiers who, I cared a lot about and, you know, in wartime who I knew were going to stay in and probably go to another deployment who were like pulling at my heartstrings as well. Um, But I just knew because of how much I was carrying emotionally with that disappointment. And listen, I didn't want to become the kind of person who just like accepted that we were going to have some shitty leaders. So I saw other people adapt and just say like, you know, all right, we're going to have shitty leaders. This, that, you know, it's to me, you can accept that in politics you can accept that in corporate america you can accept that in other sectors i just at least what i was fed was that that was not acceptable in the united states military i've matured enough to know that like you've got mediocre people and you know people who are underwhelming just basically everywhere but at least as a young person i was so idealistic as it related to the military that like I wasn't willing to a accept it of my leaders, but I also wasn't willing to become the person who, who accepted that either, if that makes sense for the sake of my own sort of like sanity. And it was easier for me to stay true to myself and get out than to basically do the adaptation that it would have taken for me to stay in for a career, at least, at least as far as I saw it in that moment. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I think it's well said, um, Everybody who's been on this show has come across a bad leader at some point in their career. Uh, as you said, unfortunately, we've become a mediocre society. Uh, we, 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 don't, we don't strive for greatness as much as we used to because it, things are handed to us so easily. And I don't, I don't say that as a government thing. I just technology has allowed us and afforded us uh, to take a lot of shortcuts and, and get things quicker. Uh, we don't have the desire and ability to want to work for things that are hard. Um, and good leaders do, and they understand that. And so, you know... Uh, there's never an easy way around it. I, I always sort of fell back on control. I, I took, I took solace in the fact that I could control what went on with the people below me. And yeah. no matter, I, I always said to everybody, I said, I said two rules. I said, guys, number one, you know, I'm an umbrella. Okay. My job is to deflect everything that comes down to you. Nothing. You should no. never get wet as long as I'm there. And two, as long as I'm the highest ranking person in the, in the area, you're good. Because nothing bad yeah. will ever happen to you as long as I'm the guy here. So as soon as somebody outranks me, come get me. Um, but, you know, it was that sort of analogy I always used about an umbrella that, that I've held throughout, throughout my entire career. And, and it didn't matter whether I was just running a staff section of eight people or I ran a task force here in the state of Georgia during COVID, over 1,000, or I had a 1,500-soldier yeah. battalion. Um, you know, my job was to be an umbrella and deflect everything from them um, and just sort of stay over them and, and make sure that – whatever bad leadership was coming down didn't land on them. It could land on yeah. me because I can take it. 
Um, but it wasn't supposed to land on them. Uh, and, 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 you know, leadership, uh, I've always said the, the, the subordinates will magnify and multiply whatever the leadership does. And that's both good yeah. and bad. And if it's bad, you know, they'll magnify it and make it greater, but they'll multiply it and do it faster. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's, it, it just is what it is. Uh, and, and look, I, part of me actually gives you and others credit who are like, okay, I'm walking away from this. I've just been a bad quitter my entire life, which is why I'm still hanging around. The world. <laughs> been a bad quitter. Um, you know, that's why I still drink, you know, I mean, hey, um, <laughs> but, uh, that's why I tell my mother, you still got drink. Yeah, nobody likes to quit her, ma. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, the organization has changed so much, but some of those same things we, you're never going to be able to eradicate the bad leaders. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I, I wish we could, but, um, you know, organizations like IAVA and everything else give voices to people who didn't have them before. And I think that's paramount. Yeah. I mean, I wish, I mean, I guess it's, it's almost no different than like what our country aspires to be. To me, it's just like, how do we keep pushing for better regardless, you know, mm-hmm. um, we, regardless of what we have right now, um, we can always do better than what the status quo is, you know, for our leaders, both in the military, but in the country, quite frankly, you know, I think one of the things that gives me optimism these days, Mark, is that our generation of veterans are ascended in this country. And I think it's a really great moment for uh, our contemporaries to be, they now have enough timing grade in different sectors to actually be eligible for positions of leadership. But I think it's at the very moment that our country needs it. Right. Um, you know, not every vet I have a great thing to say about, but there are plenty of great ones out there. And I think that this is an exciting time for, for folks in our generation who have, um, who've lived at least for a, a portion of their life, serving something greater than themselves mm-hmm. to step up and be an example for the rest of America. Cause I think we, I think we are desperately in need of it right now. Thousand percent. Um, so does does uh, Captain Allison Jaslin know what she's doing with her post military career when she gets out? Uh, yes. Okay. I had fallen in love with the campaign side of politics, and it was the middle of the two thousand eight presidential cycle. So, I actually consider myself great grateful that um, you probably know people like this too, Mark. There are folks who got out and they were very sure about getting out, but weren't sure about what they were doing afterwards, and then flailed. You know, couldn't find a sense of purpose, um, you know, misfired in a number of different jobs. Um, and, you know, I knew that I wanted to get into the campaign side of politics. And so I went off and running to go do that. And so I'm still to this day consider myself very grateful that I had that. So I didn't have that like, you know, lost and spinning moment in my life that I know many, many other vets have had. Um and, and thankfully, you know, I've just, for me, whether it's the campaigns side of politics or that trajectory taking me to roles in the White House or in Capitol Hill, to me, it's just really been reframing my service to country along the way. And so, you know, I didn't stay on a path that would have allowed me to be a four-star general in the military, um, but I have stayed on a path where I've been able to continue to serve my country and my fellow countrymen and people who I feel like are doing 
their best on behalf of our country ever since. Um, and so that has led to a very you know, meaningful life and impactful life, I think, until this point. What specifically in the campaign side of politics did you get into? Um, so campaign politics is kind of like startup world. Mm-hmm. So I, um, and every campaign actually is a startup, but, uh, you know, there are people who are a good fit for startups and there, there are people who are meant to be company men or company gals who will work their way up in a large bureaucracy. That is not me. Um, I like, uh, the fast pace of campaigns, campaigns differently than like legislating on Capitol Hill too, is there's very clear like goals. Um, and, and like you have election day and on election day, you either know whether you win or you lose. If you're a, if you're somebody who aspires to be on legislative staff, you have to sometimes put a bill idea forward and stay with that idea for the next 10 years until it finally gets across the finish line because the legislative process is what it is. And so I'm just so much more of a like uh, high energy results oriented person that campaigns were much more of a natural fit for myself in our broader sort of like politics um, than some of the other roles that I could have uh, found myself in. What about your military career other than the service aspect fit well in the campaign side of politics? Like where, where was the, the, the conjuncture point that it came together for you that you use some of those same skills? Um, so a buddy of mine who has also spent time on Capitol Hill, when he talks about hiring staff, he, um, he says you can hire Hill people and they'll, they'll find any reason to tell you that you can't do something. Mm-hmm. So he tries to hire as many people with campaign experience as possible because campaign people will find a way to do anything. (laughs) Um, And so I think the thing that the, you know, the aspect of the military that was valuable to me on campaigns is I just knew how to get shit done, you know? And then that's what you need on a campaign. You have too few people to do all the work that you need to do. And like, you need people who have a mindset of just getting shit done. Um, and, and also like people who can, uh, shake shit off too, you know, you'll have a really tough day, but like the campaign still exists and you still have, the stakes are high, it's winning or losing and you need people who can bounce up the next day and, you know, kind of no different than dealing with a loss. You're allowed to, you're allowed to like grieve a loss and, you know, spin out a little bit when one of your buddies doesn't make it back off the road, but like. You have no choice when you're deployed but to wake up the next day and ready to Charlie Mike, right? Um, And I think that that is really valuable as a campaign staffer. Um, And then, you know, I think more broadly, whether it's campaigns or some of the other roles that I've done where I've worked really close to elected officials and principals, I think think my character has been very valuable. That very much was what, you know, it was probably innate to me, but was further shaped when I was in the military. Um, You know, a lot of when you work close to with principals who, you know, they're putting their names on ballots on the outside of the door. It's a very stressful position to be in. They need people around them who they can really trust. And I think mm-hmm. I, I have been really good at getting, like earning trust really quickly with, you know, sort of like the innate character and values that I bring to the roles that I, I do. And that's, I think has been made me very valuable to, you know, members of Congress as they've navigated what is a really 
brutal job, you know? When we talk about flashbacks, was there anything on the campaign trail that popped up that made you think of the bad leader you had in Iraq the first time or the second time, and you kind of went, whoa? Um... Because essentially it's like the same thing, right? You're working for this individual, right? Yep. And it's one person in reality. I mean, granted, the, the end state is different, but you're sort of out there. I don't want to say beck and call, but, you, you know, look, you're there to aid them in getting done what they need to get done. And you don't agree. You, you can't agree with every decision they make. Yeah. I mean. is Okay, I'll rephrase the question. I'll rephrase the question. How much easier is it to swallow the bad stuff about a politician as opposed to a military person when it comes to something that happened that you didn't exactly jive with? Um, or is it the learned behavior from the military that allowed you to do it easier? Yeah, it's it's a little easier with a politician. I mean, I guess only because you don't feel as um, like I'm making a little I have more agency. You know, like I can quit. I can go work for somebody else. Sure. Um, you know, I still, I have had moments where I've struggled though, where, you know, I worked for somebody who wasn't being the leader that I felt like I would be if I was in their shoes. Um, I think with age, I've also realized that I wasn't in their shoes and kind of what that means too. And, you know, we are all mere mortals. So maybe I saw them in just human moments um, when they had a lot of pressure on them. Um, I tried to, in my career though, and I give this advice to candidates and elected officials too. It's like, just be really clear on like what your non-negotiables are. Like, what is the thing, you know, if you're an elected leader, like what is the thing that you're willing to lose your seat over? You know, what's the issue or the, the, the stand that you're going to take that no matter how I would advise you is still just worth losing over. And I feel almost the same way as a staffer, like, you kind of, for your own sanity, you have to know what like your non-negotiables are, like the thing that is really going to make you pack up and go home. And then you just have to figure out how to live with, with some of the other things, you know? And if they're not your, your end all be all, then like, you know, you just got to wait until you're in a position to be somebody who's different. But, but while you're not like have the humility to understand that, like, it's not your name on the door and it's not your name on the ballot and it's not your future that is hanging in the balance in the same way. Right. Better communicators, military leaders or political leaders? Um, <laughs> I would say... I enjoyed the look on your face there. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say more broadly, I don't think it's an either or. I think they're bad communicators in both places, but I think that communication is essential to leadership. And so I don't think, I don't know that I've known any like, truly successful leader or somebody who I would point to and say, that's a leader who wasn't good at communicating. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. Um, you decide to get off the campaign trail and start doing other things. You end up being a white house aide, right? Um, you know, uh, do these opportunities just present themselves or did you decide that, Hey, I need to go to a different path. This isn't where I ultimately want to end up. How does that all unfold? Well, campaigning, and, with, and one of the reasons why it's not for everybody, uh, campaigns always end. So when I went to the White House, it was after a campaign, and I needed a new job, and I did some networking, and that opportunity actually did just present itself. I had never even thought that I would work in the West Wing of the White House. Um, 
But a lot in politics, whether you're a staffer or an elected official, is about timing. So, you know, at most of my junctures, when I either was in an official capacity or on a campaign, it was about like, you know, me being restless and looking for the new opportunity so much as, you know, that person looking for some talent to put on their staff that fit the needs that I had. Um, so, and it's, it's, you know, taking a lot of hustle too, you know, you have to, um, you know, as with a lot of careers, at least at, at the highest levels, like if you're not, you know, consistently networking, keeping your head on a swivel, kind of like talking to the right people, can you not, um, you know, the opportunities come to you, but in some sense, you have to also create the opportunity for yourself, you know? I don't want to skip too far ahead, but I think this kind of co-joins with the question I just asked you. Um, because you've been around the White House, you've been around Joint Chiefs and senior military officials and everything else. And, and look, I've realized this now. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not even talking about Joint Chiefs. I'm just talking about one- and two-star generals, even at the guard level. Yeah. Those, those dudes are politicians. They're not, they're not military folks anymore. They're politicians. Uh, they, yeah. they wear a different uniform every day. They're a politician in a military uniform, which, again, presents some integrity challenges, if you ask me. Um, that's a completely different discussion, and I'm not speaking about anybody specifically. But, you know, uh, I can see where it does. I'm kind of curious, you know, uh, where you sit on this whole thing as far as, you know, are we doing it right with our military leaders being so sucked into the political sphere. Is there even a way to separate the two? Because you've had to sit at Congress and testify against some of the decisions that some of these people have made. Yeah. You know, it's... um, You know... It, well, so it's U.S. senators who approve who's going to be generals, you know, um, or even 06s. So I guess it's inextricably tied in a certain way. <clears throat> I think it's a real shame. Um, you know, I actually have uh, a good friend who I met in politics, but I think we became close friends because her brother um, is actually still in the Army. And Don is the kind of guy who actually thought he would never be general officer because he doesn't like blowing smoke up people's asses. Um, and he's now a two-star at Fort Bragg and he's the kind of person who like gives me hope that he can just be like the good ranger who like brings it and isn't trying to like, you know, wine and dine with anybody and still made general officer. Um, I think he's like few and far between. Um, but it's, you know, to me, life is about choices. And I wish some of these general officers were better at understanding that they had to navigate politics, but all stay grounded themselves, you know, well, they don't, they don't have to become of politics, right? you know, As, as military leaders, they could choose to figure out a way how to navigate that and not become of it. But I think it simply feels like a loyalty issue. There, there are many of them who just, you know, probably for their own success and survival, overly and adapt. That, <laughs> see, again, now you said it before, you're non-negotiables. That's the issue because it feels like a loyalty issue to me. And what happens is, is you choose yourself over the position. 
You choose your own career over the people yeah. you're over. You choose your what's in your own best interest than what's in everybody else's best interest. And you abdicated the very things that you swore you would never abdicate when you were a junior officer or even a field grade officer. And that yeah. to me is 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 beyond frustrating. And to your point, it's like, and I'll admit this openly. Part of the reason I want to be a general officer: one, people told me I'd never do it, and two, because I want to stick it to the rest of them. Because I just I, I want I want to be the black sheep in the room and tell them like. Dude, stop. You're acting like a jack wagon right now and you need to change your thinking. Well, that's why, I mean, that's why I respect Don so much. Who's the GO who I just mentioned. Like he accepted at a certain level. He was like, okay, I may just never make general officer, but I'm not going to change who I am to get that goal. If I just tap out at 06, then like, I guess that's just the way that things were supposed to be. Like he's made it in there, but, um, you know, (laughs) so drawing a through line to some of our other conversation, I mean, what really wore on me when I was in was, um, I don't know if they still have you guys do these anymore, but we wore our army values on our dog tags, you know? And it's like, I remember that. I'm wearing this shit around my neck all day long, doing my damnedest to live up to this shit that I'm preaching to all of my soldiers. All the while I have people surrounding me who aren't doing the same, you know? And to me, again, I could have, I could have stuck it out, I guess, to be sort of the, the different one among everybody. Um, I just thought that in the process of doing it, I would be so emotionally drained by the time I got to like battalion command that I would look 10 years older than I do right now. Um, as most of my colleagues are now stepping into battalion command themselves. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. And I think, you know, all we can do is be a good example ourselves, I guess, at the end of the day. Um, I wish the system was better, but we can do better and hope that through our own leadership and our sphere of influence that we can somehow make change, you know, by the way that we quite simply live and bring it every day ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I want to meet Don, uh, Don, Don and I would be friends. Um, but you know, again, <laughs> I, I, it's funny cause I, I've had to come and I've had to come to this realization, you know, that, that, and, and I knew, and I remember talking about it in, my change of command at my battalion command, you know, I said, look, at some point in time, we're, we all have to take the uniform off. We're all told we have to take the uniform off, whether it's four yeah. years, whether we choose to do it, or it's at 24 years and someone tells us, hey, it's time for you to hang it up. You have to take it off. And, and so I always knew, this, yeah. knew, knew the end was coming. But it really was, a, it was, it was like a small death when, when I had the conversation with, with a couple of generals who were like, uh, yeah, yeah you, you're not, you're not going, you're not, you're not on that list. And, and granted, there, it, the guard is a very, different place, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they get to decide individually. And I truthfully believe part of the reason that I'm not getting behind the velvet ropes is because I'm the dissenting voice in the room who tells you when you're being an idiot, uh, and nobody else wants yeah. to, um, which is fine by me. And I have to resign to the fact that I may never be a general officer, but I'll, I'll caveat it just similar to the way Don said, and I'll say this at my retirement speech, I have impeccable integrity and I never compromised it once a day in uniform. I said oh, what I, I said what I felt I, I I meant what I said and 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 I, I said what I meant and that was it and I'll live by that and I'll die by that and I'm fine and if that's what the end of my career means then I'd rather end my career with impeccable integrity than compromise it once just to get something to prove a point that only satisfies me yep I <clears throat> I'm the same way brother and I, I it's it's a sad reality though that like the only way people like you make it behind the velvet rope is if somebody who's exactly like you has already made it there before, because that's the guy who says like, 
no, I want, <laughs> I want you to get behind here. I don't want all of these other star fuckers to get yep. behind here. I want you to come by, you know, because we need more of you in our ranks. Um, so, and, and then that, that, you know, at the end of the day, like life is like luck. You know, did you get to have opportunity and timing Were you in the guard unit or the reserve unit or the active duty unit or whatever that happened to have that, you know, brigadier general who was, you know, putting the slate together for the next, you know, round of uh, appointments. And, and you're either you either find yourself in that unit and <clears throat> that person respects the way that you kind of lead and live your life as much as um you know, they've tried to do themselves or you're unlucky and you're working for some of the other guys who have, who have accepted that, um, you know, you have to play the game a different way. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't play the game. Well, um, <laughs> just, it, it's, you know, it is what it I'm is. I'm not good at playing games. No, I'm just I'm, about getting shit done. You know, <laughs> I'm good at being me and getting shit done. That's it. Uh, because it's never, and I've said this repeatedly, it's never been about performance. It's always been about personality. And, and that's, you know, but again, uh, I, I am very happy to take my integrity, put it under my pillow at night and sleep comfortably. Um, so you know. when do, when, when do the, the letters IAVA come into your lexicon? You know, when I was a, a chief of staff, I took the job in part, you know, I, I never thought of that I would be like a Capitol Hill staffer, but I worked for a member who was going to have a really tough reelect, um, <clears throat> a freshman member of Congress too. It's also like the first six months are the hardest to kind of get set up and, and rolling. And so um, the woman who I worked for, I had run her campaign. I was her campaign manager. We won. She asked me to be her chief of staff. And I was like, oh, you know, in two ways, one, I would, the mission for me would be like help get her reelected. And so that was a really good mission to sign myself up for. I also, um, you know, we've talked a lot about sphere of influence here. I, you know, Washington is a place where there are a whole lot of people that I could do without, but I, I welcome the opportunity to build a ground, uh, an office from the ground up with people who I like to say, um, you know, there are two types of people in Washington, those who want to do something important and those who want to be important. And so I wanted to build, I thought it would be a great opportunity to build an office just full of people who wanted to do something important. Um, so I did that. I got her reelected. And after I got her reelected, I was like, I'm not this kind of person who just like wants to be a chief of staff for the rest of my life. And so, you know, it was on that journey that I was like, you know, I hadn't been a defense policy staffer or, or anything like that. I was just more of a, a, a political and comms person, um, which happens to be, you know, two of the strengths that IABA has in, as an organization. It's it's really good at political advocacy and then also really leverages the media to get shit done. Um, so I essentially took like this, the skill set that I learned in politics, um, both as a get shit done campaigner and political communicator. Um, and the fact that I was an actual Iraq war veteran myself to an organization like IAVA, which is, you know, it's like the, the marriage of my two chapters of my professional life. Um, and, you know, a lot of the staff at IAVA that preceded me had really kind of like figured out advocacy on the fly and they had a smattering of different folks, but I was kind of the first person who actually walked in the door with like some real, chops um and so not only was you know political director in 2016 but pretty quickly you know moved up to the c-suite um and, you know eventually becoming the executive director in 2017 to launch our she who born the battle campaign um 
have stayed in the family ever since, even though I've gone and done some other things. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful full, full circle moment to be able to come back as CEO uh, and lead the organization to its next chapter as we approach its 20th anniversary. Uh, who came up with She Who Born the Battle? Was it you? I mean, who first it brought was. the idea that, hey, that slogan needs to change? Um, it was actually, <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I don't go, I don't go around bragging about it much, but I, well, I'm glad I asked the question. So then. We, IVA before me had all, also wanted to elevate women, um, veterans and advocacy. We were the first major veterans organization to make women, not just a priority, but the number one priority. So that I cannot take credit for that. That was a goal of the organization before I got there, but once I got there, it came in my portfolio. And when I, I hadn't really focused on the, the VA motto much before that time. Um, but once I focused on it more, um, I made the recommendation that we basically make that the central point of our campaign because it says a lot without having to say a lot. You know, if women are feeling like invisible veterans, if they're feeling like they're not being adequately recognized, well, they're not being recognized by the very institution that is supposed is designed to support them in its motto. Um, and so it, it, it was a really good way to kind of get people to understand sort of the, the plight of the woman veteran, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and having that focal point uh, was more about telling that story than actually just changing words in a motto, you know, and I can say, you know, it's, it's a crazy experience to kind of like have that idea, have that idea also take fire, but also um, we have to begin to change the narrative through promotion and targeting, you know, the motto and telling the story of a woman veteran behind that. So um, I find it very rewarding to have been a part of the ground floor of the seed change, I guess, <laughs> that um, hopefully is happening in, in America as it relates to women veterans. Well, thank you for your work. I certainly appreciate it. Um, you know, anybody who's been to the VA, myself included, could give you a litany of things that are wrong with it. Uh, you've dealt closely. <laughs> you've dealt closely with the VA. What is the VA currently doing right? I think the VA, um, you know, cultural competency is one of the best things about the VA. Um, Veterans have unique needs based on their lived experience in the military. And that's something that a VA doctor can unpack more quickly than a civilian doctor could have. Um, you know, I also think that, uh, you know, I'm currently a patient of the VA, but most veterans who are patients of the VA aren't the ones, those of us who have like gone out there in the world and like been the most successful and have, you know, great private sector insurance. So the fact that our brothers and sisters, even if we could still do work to improve the VA in a variety of aspects, like the fact that they just have somewhere to turn, I think is a great thing that our country does for its veterans, um, especially for the ones who are getting like best in class um, private sector healthcare plans based on their employer. Um, so to me, <clears throat> there's always going to be work to be done to improve all of the things in America. Um, but I think our veterans are getting a lot better here than they are in other countries. And that's True. a fact. Um, and you can tell this to all your political friends, uh, anybody, any politician who claims they can fix the VA is lying. 
you can't throw money at this problem. It's not a money problem. It's a people problem um, from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that there's not good people at the VA. There is. Um, yeah. There's not enough good people at the VA, but it's a yeah. it's a it's a system that isn't solved just by fixing it with money. Um, yeah. You know, there, there's we need a lot more get shit done type folks inside the VA. Uh, quick little. Well, I mean, we need we need those people to be empowered too. Yes. You know. Well, that's that's a you know, there's only a few people at the control switch here, Allison. I mean, that's just what it boils down to. Uh, and, yep. and, and you know, that sort of oligarchy, if you will, uh, is, is kind of what, uh, is, is keep it struggling. Now you could share this little tale. Uh, I was finishing my, my lumbar, uh, exam and everything else. And I got sent cause they start outsourcing these VA things to third, third party doctors cause they can't handle them all. Yeah. I went to a doctor appointment, drove 45 minutes to get there on a Saturday morning, thought I was getting a lumbar exam only to find out that they wanted to test me for erectile dysfunction. And I had to explain to that, say, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm good. We don't need to go through this. Are you sure? No, I'm good. Trust me. I'm good. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, my, ah. my VA story. That was, at least they paid me for the drive. Right. Uh, so there is that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, all right. When you, uh, when you, when do you first find out that, you know, CEO is a possibility of IAVA for you? Um, well, I was on the board, <clears throat> okay, uh, for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America when the transition happened. And uh, in full honesty, I actually didn't see me being the next CEO as a thing. Um, but I cared deeply about the organization. Uh, a couple of my fellow board members talked to me about whether I would consider being the next CEO. Um, and sort of inertia moved in that direction. Um, otherwise I didn't, I didn't actually like see it in my crystal ball. Um, that said, you know, as previously noted, um, I'm the kind of person who's on this planet to lead people and organizations. Um, and when there's an opportunity to step up and lead, like I can't, I don't, I don't just hard pass, you know, like that's not me. I'm the kind of person who says, okay, like, there's an opportunity to lead. There are people who are looking to me to lead. And so I guess like, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing going forward. Um, and so that's how I, that's how I find myself here. What does IAVA need to accomplish in the short term and the long term here from 2023 and, and going forward? Uh, in the sh- short term, um, you know, Congress is just getting rolling. Uh, but I think you're going to see us doing some advocacy definitely around, um, you know, a mission that we're, we're bringing from the last Congress into this Congress is advocating to bring some of our our allies, um, both Iraq and Afghanistan um, interpreters here uh, who not just as a country, we made promises to, but many service members feel like they personally made promises to um, folks who were riding in Humvees with them, who are marching in infantry platoons with them some of whom they credit their lives with, um, who are now being hunted by the Taliban and or other aggressors abroad um, back home. So that's something that I know our members are looking for us to advocate around, in part because they're weighing the emotional weight, or excuse me, they're carrying the emotional weight of that here at home still. Um, There's, you know, we're starting to do some research into uh, what is characterized as moral injury in that regard, you know, service members feeling personally responsible for 
let's call it an interpreter that gets killed by the Taliban overseas. Um, you know, long term, it's about the role the organization can play on behalf of our uh, generation of veterans as we sort of move into this post forever wars phase where, oh, by the way, there are still troops being deployed under those authorizations of military force, right? So how do we, yeah. how do we continue to advocate for those who are still serving, who are, who are still deployed, but also in this new era that we're in, you know, and, and how are we a voice for those who are still serving and those who have served kind of in this moment that we're in? Um, but I will say, like, not only can we bridge the military-civilian divide in that way, um, we're also the only organization that represents exclusively volunteers, you know, you've got all these other veterans organizations, they got plenty of draftees among them. We're all volunteers. And as long as our, our country continues to fight its wars with all volunteers, I think IVA has a real role to play in yeah. helping our nation understand what that means, helping it understand that we need to support our veterans as much as our troops. Otherwise, people aren't going to go serve if they think that they're going to get dealt a poor deal once they take off the uniform. Um, so I think it's I think it's an exciting time for the organization um, as it approaches its 20th year. And as I mentioned beforehand, I also think it's an exciting time for our generations of veterans. I think post 9-11 generation veterans are ascendant in our country today. I think many of our fellow Americans are looking to us to lead. And I hope IVA can play a role in telling that story, too. I, I want you to take your IVA hat off for a second and then I want you to put it back on. I want you to answer the same question. Um the current military, where it is, how it's perceived, the recruiting crisis and everything else. Uh, what is your reaction to where we were and where we are, both as now former Captain Allison Jaslow and then as IAVA CEO? Um, well, first of all, I I want to be a, like a part of the solution in terms of um, – addressing our recruiting crisis, even though I chose to get out, I was very honest with my experience. I also am the first person to say that like, I don't know who I'd be without my military service. And I recommend to anybody who's considering it, that they serve. Um, I think we need more people. Um, I think we actually have, you mentioned beforehand uh, about how some people said, why don't you get a real job? I think there's a little bit of that going on in our society right now. <clears throat> I think if more people were, um, promoting it who weren't even in the military, you know, uh, as a good path or a good professional moment to have, um, you know, for those of us who didn't do it for an entire career, I think we'd be better off. I don't know if there's that kind of encouragement happening in society today. Um, so I think <clears throat> the more that we could do of that, the better. Um, what my hope is, is that this is in some way, shape or form, like one of the many consequences of the pandemic, like maybe recruiters can get into high schools, students weren't in high schools. The job market elsewhere has been really hot, um, that once some of these pandemic related factors sort of reset in a way <clears throat> that maybe that can address part of the military recruiting crisis. <clears throat> the only real systemic thing that I feel like I can assertively say is at play here is um, the level of health and wellness in our nation's youth is troubling these days. And I think many young people aren't viable recruits. And since we have a national public education system, like the fact that I don't, I don't know if they're still doing the 
presidential fit, physical fitness test these days, or like, you know, if there are so many kids who are getting school lunches, you know, paid for or buying it at a discounted rate, like I would hope that it's a healthy lunch, but if we can't, you know, <clears throat> if we can't have more viable recruits, I think that's a real problem. So besides like outside of anyone making a personal decision about their own future, it's very clear to me that we don't have enough viable recruits in terms of like the health and wellness of our young people in this nation. And that's something I feel like we should be most concerned about as it relates to the recruiting crisis over the long term. Yeah. Um, I'll add this. I, I, and I've said this repeatedly and I have no problem saying it now. Uh, I've said it on social media. We had the wrong conversation during COVID. The conversation we should have had wasn't about vaccinations. It was about a fat ass getting in shape. We are the fattest, most obese, out of shape country on the planet. And we should have yep. pivoted to being a healthier, more fit. Because guess what? Healthy people, we're all okay. COVID didn't affect us because we're healthy. Because yep. at the end of the day, our bodies were willing to fight it off on its own. Now, there are obviously rare exceptions, exceptions to all that you do. I'm speaking very broadly here. And I'm not a scientist yep. or an epidemiologist. But generally, uh, I do know. 80% of all the people who were hospitalized, guess what? Obesity was the number one factor. So uh, yeah. the numbers were there to support. I just think we had the wrong conversation. And to your point about, you know, us not being having a healthy youth, I think it's, you know, too much video games, too much YouTube, too many tablets, too many all the other things. Uh, and, and, again, it's a much grander conversation. But, uh, you know, beyond all that, I mean, does IAVA even necessarily worry about the current state of the military as opposed to just those who are out of it? Um, from a personnel perspective, yes. Okay. Um, you know, it's the, you know, you have, you have veterans of course, who fully get your veteran status when you take off the uniform. But like, once you've started, once you've started serving, you become a veteran too. And so we care about, uh, you know, it's mission first people always. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so from a human resources perspective, we definitely care about, um, the troops in part, because I mentioned beforehand, they can't speak up for themselves, you know, so somebody has to. And so when it comes to the, the health and welfare of our troops, um, IEVA has been a loud voice, whether it's, you know, around um, the need to address military sexual assault um, or, you know, any other, any number of other concerning factors uh, to include, like, I always am trying to beat the drum on when, um, you know, there, there are troops that are deployed today, but you wouldn't know it based on our news coverage. But every time there's an opportunity to sort of elevate, like, oh, there was, you know, a, a number of troops injured in Syria last week, you know, elevating that to try and inject it into the public consciousness, because I think we have a, a great role to play there. Um, because if we don't, who else will, right? Like, obviously, the media is not doing it on its own. Um, but I think our fellow Americans need to understand that, like, the safe and, safety and security that we're enjoying here at home comes at a price. And it's not just when... There are these big wars that are in headlines every day. It's because we've got special forces in Somalia, Syria, Iraq, um, fighting against terror, you know, in a, a, a smaller way than we've done in our large ground wars. But they're still there. So it doesn't come here at home like it did on 9-11, you know. That's, that's a figurative price, but it's also a literal price, which is why the defense budget starts with a 7 and a B. Uh, yes. <laughs> 700 fair, fair. every year. So, uh, yeah, but again, complain, folks. Uh, anyway, um couple more questions here for you. Um, if, uh, if, if CEO Alan, uh, Allison Jaslow had spoke to second Lieutenant Allison Jaslow, what would she say? Words of advice. That's a really good question. 
get the extra ice cream in the chow hall? And was it that simple? I think I'd say keep doing what you're doing. You know, I think I've lived a lot of my life trying to be a cheerleader for other people and um, haven't always had the cheerleader that I wish I had. Um, I can actually count Paul Rykoff in that category as somebody who's actually been a legit cheerleader for me. Um, <clears throat> so if I could be a cheerleader for myself, I think I would tell me to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but otherwise, like, um, there's nothing I'd do different. Like we all, we all chart our course and our path and like, you know, I'm, I'm very fulfilled and satisfied with kind of the journey that I've had to this point. And, you know, the, uh, midlife does a number on a bunch of people, but I can't believe that I have so much life still to live, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm optimistic about that. In fact, maybe if I told platoon leaders, my, you know, I was in a hurry to go a lot of places, you know, and, uh, I had more life to live than maybe I thought, but maybe, maybe wartime service teaches you that though, you know, how ephemeral, life is. Um, you know, I've also, uh, my father died by suicide when I was younger. So I think I learned at an early age that none of us is guaranteed a tomorrow. Um, so to me, I'm grateful that I learned at a very young age that, uh, you know, we have to make each day matter. Um, and I think I've tried to do my best, you know, throughout my adult life in that way. Your best leadership trait. What is it? My integrity, like you. It's the thing that should be at the forefront. I mean, everything else can, everything else is somewhat negotiable after that, but uh, your integrity never should be. Um, yep. I, I know you just took over the role. Uh, not that I'm suggesting you go on to bigger and better things, but you know, uh, is this where Alice may firmly plant her feet for the foreseeable future, or uh, are we running for office? Do we want to get back into politics, or are we okay with where things are right now? Um. I don't know. Right now, I, um, I've got my hands full. <laughs> leading, <laughs> the nation's leading post-9-11 generation advocacy organization. And I will tell you, uh, I'm a hit-the-ground-running kind of person, but um, I'm at the phase where I, I was telling a colleague the other day, I was like, ooh, I'm in it, because you're, you know, you're trying to get your head around an operation and whatnot. So I can't see much you know, beyond yeah. uh, Friday this week. Um, but listen, you know, IBA is politically adjacent. Um, so, you know, I am, you know, in a certain aspect in the fray. Um, I have an interest in seeing people of high character and um, servant leaders getting elected. And so at a minimum, I want to make sure those people get into office. Um, again, I don't think that every veteran fits that uh, profile, unfortunately. Um, it's on, it's on my list, for vets. the record. It's on my list. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> Something I'd like to do, uh, but timing and opportunity, right? I mean, that's, you know, and, and in this case, money. Uh, timing, opportunity, and money. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, to your point about money, um, that is one of the, like the tragic things about vets is like, we, like, I think a lot of people would love to see more veterans in office, but like most of us don't come from money, you know, like my stepdad worked at a grocery store. Um, you know, 
I have come from a working class family. I'm very grateful for Uncle Sam for putting me through college. Like, I don't come from a lot of money. And it's a real barrier to entry for a lot of vets who I think the American people would love to see in office, but even some vets who maybe would want to serve in that way, but just don't have the, the financial network to pull it off. I have a ton of confidence. I would kick ass in politics. I just don't have the money. I just don't have the money. Like I, that's what it's the only thing holding me back. Like I, you know, and I don't like asking people for money. I like earning money. Like, you know, like I, I don't, you know, it's just, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's the side of politics that becomes very, very frustrating. But again, a, a diff, different conversation for a different day. Uh, but yes, I well, agree. If you decide to run someday, call me for a check and I won't care what side of the aisle you're running on. <laughs> I, I, I'm running on the side of the aisle that makes everything better. Yes. That's it. So, so it's all, it's, it's that simple. The letter next yep. to my name is insignificant. The, the letter next to my name, as we discussed before, I isn't for independence, it's for integrity. Uh, and and that's, yep. that should be good enough for, for everybody involved. So, uh, you know, inshallah, as they say, right? Uh, listen, you yep. have been so gracious with your time. Uh, I know you're super busy and, and I don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, we've gone so long. Thank you so much for everything. I wish you nothing but continued success with IAVA all your personal endeavors and being so candid and, and sharing your story and opening up to me and, and, and to the audience. And, uh, you know, again, obviously they can go to IAVA.org and get every, every other information there that they need as far as if they haven't registered and sign up and continue to help grow the organization there as well. Uh, but Definitely. just huge, huge amount of gratitude. Thank you so much. You've been amazing. Thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed the conversation and the opportunity to get to know you, man. Allison Jazzle, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.